everybody is murderous in their intentions towards everybody else. They can't hold them back! Submit yourself to one all-powerful absolute sovereign. Thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century natural philosopher, called this... Leviathan! I like shapeshifters, only a lot more into Eastern folk. And nothing can kill them. Hey, so maybe I'm not real. Hello, the internet, and welcome to the Lands of Leviathan podcast. A member of the Agora podcast network where we discuss political science and popular culture. Hosted by Brock Roderman and Peter Sleeman. In this episode, we are going to be discussing authoritarian regimes. This is our follow-up that we promised. Uh, We previously did an episode on our democratic regimes, but now we're doing um, authoritarian regimes, which I think is going to be a lot of fun. We'll uh, use a slightly different style this time. Um, we'll try and go through the different regime types um, and then try and place popular culture references among them. Yeah. Uh, sort of like we did in episode, I think it was episode two, the way we did it with um, with Star Wars. Yeah. So uh, so we're going to replicate that style. But before we get there, um, one, we need to <laughs> retract uh, an entirely false piece of information that we gave out in not one of our uh, Lands of the Viathan episodes, but on... The special episode we did with Steve Greta on Ukraine, yeah. where Peter said... Uh, so, in that episode, I said that the Crimea is in the northeastern part of the country, which it's not. Crimea is not in the northeastern <laughs> part of Crimea. Uh, pff, see, I'm already getting it wrong. Uh, <laughs> Crimea is not in the northeastern part of Ukraine. Uh, Crimea is actually in the south of Ukraine, which makes sense, considering that it's um, on the coast. So... Sorry about that, I don't guys. think you need to tell people where it actually is because they're probably smart enough they could figure it out themselves. Yeah. But uh, I also need to apologize because I did know better and I was just too chicken shit to, re- to retract your statement for you. So I let you go with that one and I shouldn't know. Yeah. Brock's very scared of me, so uh, he, he doesn't yeah. correct me that often. <laughs> My overactive conscience pulled, it, pulled in there. <laughs> Getting onto the, the podcast of the month at the time of recording, it's still uh, Royfield Brown yeah. and his How Jamaica Took Over the World podcast. So... Be sure to check that out, but also keep yourself updated with Agora's podcast network by just checking out the website and following it on Acast. Uh, We'll see who's going to be the next special podcaster to be promoted next month. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And also, guys, go check out the um, Crimea, the Crisis in Ukraine episode. It's on the Agora feed on Acast. It is an interesting episode, um, except for that part where I completely lied to you so um i'm not always right (laughs) um okay but yeah today we're going to be doing um the non-democratic forms of regimes in the world but more but more broad than just non-democratic actually authoritarian because authoritarian regime types include some democratic regimes absolutely um, you know which aren't entirely liberal so we'll we'll talk about a few illiberal regime types but uh but for the most part, yes, mostly non-democratic regimes. Absolutely. So I think, like, Brock, do you want, I think the best thing to do first is just to provide a little bit of a tool uh, for placing these regimes, uh, something that devised by Michael Oakeshott. What do you think? Uh, we can use that as long as we don't ignore totalitarianism. Yeah, absolutely. So there is a political thinker, Michael Oakeshott, who's also one of my favorite uh, political theorists. I think Brock loves him too. He was also a really cool academic. Um, he used to arrive to all of his swanky parties with like really hot girls on his arms. So he's known as a bit of a bad boy political scientist, which I think is a contradiction in terms. But <laughs> <laughs> He tried. He tried to break the mold he's from the, 
he's the Indiana Jones of political science, which is a pretty good title to have. (laughs) Well, actually not, because, you know, Indiana Jones didn't actually do any historical work. Yeah. Whereas Michael O'Shea was a proper theorist. some papers on the fact that God is real, but uh, whatever, uh, Indy, (laughs) shitty academic. So, (laughs) so Michael Oakeshott, uh, based on the philosophies of uh, guys like Plato and Aristotle and a a bunch of other uh, philosophers, devised an idea that regimes can be placed based on their assumptions of what the good life is and how that good life should be attained. So the good life is a philosophical uh, concept of what the end goal of human existence is. So like what, what are we as humans striving to achieve, the perfect life? Now, your liberal regimes, which we've talked about before, so we won't go into much detail on that. Your liberal regimes assume that the best type of good life can only be attained through individualism. The idea that only the individual knows what is best for him or her, which is a concept that most of us in the modern world buy into and we accept that. However, there is another assumption that is made by a bunch of different regimes, which is that the good life is actually attained by effort on the part of the state or, you know, the bureaucratic mechanism of that state. So if you imagine this as a line, and Brock and I use this quite often, these continuums that we can place states on, on the far left-hand side, you would have states like, uh, you know, America, the United Kingdom, which set up their system so that people can attempt to achieve their own ends um, and their own goals uh, through their own individual enterprise. On the far right, you would have a regime which assumes that only through the endeavor of the state itself can human beings achieve the end goal of what they assume to be the end goal. And in the case of communism, it is the equalization of capital across all of society. And in order for that to happen... Let's look at a, a, a more authoritarian uh, state that, that believes that doesn't ever want to do away with itself. Because you know, if you had to apply Marxist theory to a, a communist state, that communist state would eventually have to devolve. Yeah, it would have sure. to uh, become a non-entity so that individuals could live without it. So what about Nazi Germany? Uh, yes. In fact, Nazi Germany, I think, is a good one. It's, a, it's also a good example of a totalitarian state. Yeah. So I think... Um, Nazi Germany's assumptions on the good life is to is the supremacy of the Aryan race um, across the globe, and that you know Aryan perfection across the globe is the end result of the Nazi regime, and the supremacy of those that people. So, and that you know that requires the state to take control of a huge amount of. Things that we would usually consider as individual liberty. So, you know, the the Nazi regime started to get involved with things like eugenics. Who could breed with who? Um, Obviously, the systematic extermination of certain groups of people, the Jews being top of that list, which was terrible. Breed is just the wrong word to use. Yeah, well, I mean, eugenics was disproven uh, after the Second World War. It's like saying, like, who can mate with who? Yeah, and and just like, just to, to show you guys why eugenics is such a bad idea... Just look at the modern pug or bulldog. That's what happens when you start breeding <laughs> things together. Um, it's not a great idea. We don't want to breed people together because then you end up with, I don't know, Tsar Nicholas II, who, if you poked him, he bled to death. Um, it, you know, in, inbreeding is not great. So, But the, at the end of the day, the state makes an assumption about the good life and it, a more liberal democracy or more liberal state 
does tries makes the assumption that only individuals can attain that good life. Now, obviously, um, so yeah. so to work on that example of Nazi Germany, that that would basically be a state that saw the achievement of the personal good through the state's actions, yeah. especially in this in this example, the the activities of the German state of the Nazi state. Absolutely, yeah. And um, what, what's interesting there is that it um, it saw that pursuit as the extermination of other states insofar as they supported. Uh, people or, or ethnicities or groups of people that it did not itself support as being non-Aryan. So any state, say like Poland or France or anyone who, who contradicted the pursuit and the, and the high elevation, shall I say, use the word elevation, of the Aryan race, they were the enemies of the centralized power of the of Nazi Germany. Yeah. And obviously in, in Nazism, in Hitler's idea, you kind of had a hierarchy of peoples. So at the top were the Aryans... Then you had the kind of other European peoples like the Slavs. Um, no, first the Germans. Well, the Germans were the Aryans. No, not necessarily. You had like dark-haired Germans. Ah, which Hitler himself was. Which is why like Hitler yeah. didn't want the extermination of the French or the British. He wanted to include them in his... Um, in his Conversion Reich. of the world. Yeah. Um, obviously, Africans, gone. Jews, gone. Uh, gypsies, fucking gone. Um, yeah. Gays. Gays, gone. Yeah. A lot of people just straight up gone. Not a nice guy, Hitler was. So we can see <laughs> the the damages. Now we can see the harms of having such a such a totalitarian uh, t- regime type. Exactly. But, um, but they aren't all that. They aren't all that bad. It just serves as a good example to uh, to place on the end of that of that uh, spectrum, on yeah. the extreme of that continuum. And obviously, we've said this before. You know, these on the far absolute far right and absolute far left. Those are ideal types that can never actually exist. Um, you know, we place America quite far to the left, but I mean, even the America Caesar's specific. No, let's put let's put um, the Star Trek Enterprise on the far left. Oh yeah, like the Star Trek universe, far left. Uh, but even that, I mean, the state still has to take control of specific things. I mean, who builds the ships? The state. I mean, they still make okay. an assumption. You know, what I'm saying is the ideal well, type can't exist. Well, well, typically, um, we on uh, on on Oakshot spectrum, you would place Nazi Germany on the far right, it being. Uh, fascist and conservative and totalitarian yeah. and the far left would actually be your example of uh, perfect communist Russia yes. or the end state the end state of Marxist communism where everybody is free and it's actually an anarchic system there is no state everybody is free absolutely. to do as they please I think the best absolutely. you know what's the best example is uh, Sauron's Mordor the entire state on the right hand side is completely geared towards conquering the world for Sauron nobody has any individual liberty you know, the orcs right. can't do what they want. Sauron is the only guy who gets to make any decisions at all. Um, that's probably the best example of the ideal far right on the spectrum. I'd actually like to place him on, on the spectrum we use later. So let's uh, keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah. So now that we've... Just keep that tool in mind, guys. It's it's an interesting one. But let's discuss the different types of, of, state, of authoritarian and totalitarian states that we get. So... Uh, do you want to discuss the differences between authoritarian and totalitarian states? Uh, yeah, that's a quick one. So people often assume that they're the same thing, yeah. um, which is an understandable assumption. But if we dig into it a bit deeper, we see that uh, I made the mistake of, of placing totalitarianism underneath regime, authoritarian regime types when they are completely different. Mm. Totalitarianism is what we just described in Nazi Germany. It's the end actually in, uh, in Mordor and the Sorrow. Yeah. It's the idea that Power is absolutely controlled by leaders or leadership or centralized leadership. Yeah. 
So every there is no idea, there's no notion of the private sphere or of the private life. Everything is public. Everything can be controlled by by leadership if it so deems uh, that it wants to take control of that. Uh, another good example is fascism in, in Italy yeah. in the in the forties and the late 30s. Yeah. So the, the best way to describe that is that they, you can never ever hold up a, a candle to the to the the state's power. You can never tell them that this is not its sphere. It can't interfere in certain affairs. Everything it can be uh, interfered with by yeah. the state. And I think yeah, that's the only other example is Imperial Japan uh, during uh, the Second World War. Because again, you had uh, the, the Imperial family and the government underneath it almost having complete control over every aspect of society. But they can tell you who you must marry, what you must do for a living, how many children you must have. They can tell you what color your hair should be if they wanted to, to do that. Um, they mostly just applied that power to, 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 bureau- to bureaucracy and running the state efficiently as a military mechanism. Yeah. But it didn't stop them from doing some pretty sick stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Japanese were all about doing a whole bunch of human experimentation, which was fucked. Um, <laughs> but I think what's interesting about that as well is that like it's almost impossible to get a pure totalitarian regime because like the state can't be in your house 24 7 telling you like what to eat and what to do and what not to do these things only really exist in you know in their pure form in popular culture like in mordor or maybe in the hunger games or in things like that um but not just to turn to what authoritarian regime types are like as opposed to totalitarian ones is authoritarian ones are a little more understanding of their pragmatic restraints So some of the, some so authoritarianism is like between totalitarianism and liberal democracy. Mm. Um, it places more value on the ability of the state to conduct and lead public life, and it tends to swallow up a bit more of the private life than some people believe it should. Mm. So a typical authoritarian regime would want to control, say, uh, macroeconomics as m- many parts of micro of the microeconomic sphere, some parts of public schooling, for example. Um, and help and provide certain types of healthcare mm. for free. Um, authoritarian regime types are can even be not so po- can be less positive than that. They can also dictate certain policies without getting without representing the people's interests. Um, so it would be it could be rule of the people, sometimes even rule by the people, but hardly ever rule for the people. We'll get to some examples later, but it, it, for now, keep the idea that authoritarian regime types are a bit broad, a, a bit broader than totalitarianism. Uh, and it, they, they can inv- just one other thing uh, for the authoritarian regime types. What's important is, you know, they can still be democratic in a specific way, but there is no political opposition to whoever's happens to be ruling at the time. So, uh, you know, like the Freedom House Index at the moment classifies Russia as an authoritarian regime. It has elections, but once once whoever's leading the country is put into power, there are no opposition parties worth anything. Um, nobody can actually stand up to the government in any meaningful way. They have complete control over the government. Yeah, to use some of the qualities, um, some of the broad, the wide-ranging qualities uh, of authoritarian regime types is one, there's a restriction on political pluralism. So the number of actors that can legally participate in politics is cut down. Mm. So, for example, certain political parties or interest groups, sometimes even parts of the legislature are shut down. Second quality is the legitimacy is not necessarily derived on popular consent, but 
it's more derived on, from emotion or a, a recognizable societal problem. Yeah. So you can often see it in certain liberation movements where they've recognized a social problem, a social problem in, in the in the, the running of the country historically. Another a third quality is the minimal social mobilization or the constraints thereon. Yeah. Uh, thereupon. So say for example, political associations are cut down. You can't um, you can't mingle with any. You can't form associations with everyone that you want to. You yeah. can't um, set up certain political goals for yourself. Uh, you can't set out to change certain things in society. That kind of mobilization is cut down. Very little civil society movement. And lastly, the, the fourth uh, quality that Lintz identifies is an informally defined executive power. That or the, More that the powers shift or change. So you'll see certain things like at certain times, the executive will decide for itself it's now going to uh, be able to appoint certain judges. Or it's going to have certain powers in the military, mm. or it's going to be able to control certain media programs or outlets, mm. and th- and you normally know it's a, it's shifting because they'll place um, termination periods in mind. So they'll say, right, we'll we will control the, the national broadcast network for five years. We want to implement certain changes and reforms, and then we'll pull out. Yeah. Uh, now, whether they actually pull out or not is not the point. The, the point is that they're willing to change. Uh, certain state powers and place them under their own executive powers, in other words, their own political powers, uh, because they see it fit to, to install certain reforms. Yeah. And that's when you know a, a regime type is, is authoritarian. Yeah. If there's a cut down of political pluralism, if legitimacy is based more on emotion than anything else, if social mobilization is condemned to a certain extent, and if executive powers uh, are informally changed to suit the executive those are the qualities we should keep in yeah. mind. And that causes, that causes these regimes to slide along our spectrum towards the right-hand side, um, which a lot, I mean, you can do that very easily. It's, it's very easy for these regimes to slide backwards and forwards, um, you know, quite often. Yeah, yeah. So, But you're normally sitting on that spectrum, you're sitting sort of center, center, right. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, but I mean, you can even see it. Anyway, anyway, but... Anyway, between the centre and the right, yeah. But yeah, you can, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you can see, like, for instance, a country like South Africa, uh, you know, over the past couple of years, probably sliding a couple of notches to the right. Um, there's a lot of countries that are sliding a little bit to the right. Um, whereas I, I would say your Scandinavian countries continue their incremental slide further over to the left. It's it's interesting if you were to, you know, kind of graph these countries and if you could able if you could see them in real time on this line as they move up and down um i don't know if you yeah. could get a program to and do just that. So just to just to end this part it's become overly theoretical again <laughs> uh, we don't want to confuse this kind of a spectrum with the one that's typically used in in, in media and in journal r- reports where they refer to ideological lines yeah, yeah so we're not we're not talking about the line of the left being liberal and the right being conservative yeah. We're talking about the left being uh, liberal regime types yeah. and the right being illiberal regime types. Because not I, not not to ideological yeah. stance. To make you guys super confused, you could theoretically have a very conservative government that is very liberal in the way it gets freedom to its people. Yes, yeah, you could have. <laughs> like if like if the Republicans came to power. yeah, you would have a very yeah free people, but a conservative government. So let's discuss the different types of let's just call them authoritarian regimes seeing as we've only had three totalitarian ones, uh, let's let's discuss the different types of or, uh, authoritarian regimes. So, what's the first one here? Is uh, military junta? Oh yeah, military. Of course, that's yeah one of the oldest types. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the defining definition of a military junta 
um, as opposed to military dictatorship. Do you want to try that again? Because a defined definition, that sounds tautological. I think it sounds super awesome, but... Uh... No, it sounds like you don't know English. <laughs> <laughs> the defining characteristic... <laughs> um, <laughs> there we go. So, um, yeah, the defining characteristic of a military junta, as opposed to a military dictatorship, is that the military, you, what usually happens is uh, there's a very poor separation between the military and the what we usually call the civilian government. So in many countries, the civilian government is sitting complete control of the military. In many countries that have a very militant history, such as Egypt, Burma, uh, Somalia, Nicaragua, Spain, uh, Spain quite a while ago, but um, these the military is not happy with the way that the civilian government is running the country and they fucking coup. They use themselves to take over the country. But uh, the specific characteristics of a military junta is that they install the leaders of the military into a council that holds executive and oftentimes legislative power. Um, but it's usually made up of all the generals, all the admirals, uh, you know, whatever captains in the Air Force. So it's all the leaders of the different branches of the military that then run the government from then on. And we've seen this in places like, uh, I think Burma's a good example because it, it's, it's, it's been going on for a while. Uh, well, it's now Myanmar. but yes. Sorry, yeah, and then in Myanmar now. Um, and then, uh, then on the other side of that, it's a similar characteristic, but sometimes you get a more personalized rule in, in a military dictatorship, which is when your a leader will take control, a military leader will take control himself or herself. But I think what's interesting about the military junta type is that then, although they are authoritarian, sometimes they're not that bad. Um, there have been quite a few studies of looking at, you know, military rule by juntas. And uh, so, for instance, during the military rule in Egypt, uh, during the 1960s, I think, um, there, were, there was quite a lot of development in terms of like economics, um, not a lot of personal freedom, which I, 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 you know, I would agree with you is, is pretty bad. But the, the military does attempt to develop the country in, which, in the way that they see they should develop. This is oftentimes not just a power grab because it is a council of leaders that are obviously having discussions within themselves. But they're obviously not accountable to the people, which is terrible. But um, there is a, a thing in popular culture that military juntas are always bad. But that's not necessarily the case. Oftentimes, military juntas take control from a dictatorial leader in order to install a more yeah, democratic Yeah, that's government. what I wanted to add, yeah. is that it, it, military personnel, while many of them might, might be... Well, some of them might be power hungry and they, they could, military leaders could become closely associated with political leaders, especially in newly formed states. And when they get an eye on the the powers of the leadership, they could decide to take those powers for themselves. However, most of the time, because they are so entrenched in their military ways and they know the military and they're used to it and they're used to the, um, working for the people that support them, they're not inclined to become political leaders. Mm. It's not in their nature. Um, so while they recognize opportunities, it's it's quite seldom that, that military personnel often want to get involved in politics. Yeah. And if they do have to, it's quite reluctantly. Um, you know, I sound like I'm, I'm, I'm saying that this never happens. Of course, you know, military junta's happen, but they happen reluctantly, and, and oftentimes when they do happen, it they happen with an end sight, with an end time in mind. They don't, they don't want to be in power forever. At least not, not every military junta wants to be in power forever. They see themselves more as like a liberation force. Yeah. They want to, they, they want to take, attribute their power or uh, set their sights on some very serious problems in society. 
or particularly they just want to remove a very bad uh, civilian leader or leadership yeah and they uh, and and they give themselves a, a limited amount of time in power yeah. now obviously power corrupts so the more power they have you know the, the more they tend to be corrupted absolutely but um, but very often, but sometimes you do get uh, positive effects. You do get some benefits out of military juntas. Yeah. And I think um, and I think that's the point you're trying to yeah. get. Yeah, and there's a really cool quote from Battlestar Galactica, um, which really details what happens in this kind of scenario. Is that uh, the police protect the people? I think it's the police protect the people from themselves. The military protect the people from the enemy. When the military become the police the people become the enemy. Um, And I think what the Admiral was stating in that point is oftentimes what happens is when the military takes over, they do it for good reason. But because they're so regimented and they're so used to fighting an enemy that when they come up against opposition from the people in, you know, what happens in any, uh, you know, any political situation, they don't really know how to react except in violent ways. And that's what often causes these military junta's to become very dictatorial and authoritarian and quite horrible for the people living under them. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, should we move on to presidential dictatorships? So, do you want to go in and jump in and describe these ones? Um, I would, I'll try because, the, you know, as we move along, they, they tend to get a bit blurry, these authoritarian regime types. Um, a presidential dictatorship, okay, first of all, it's not a military junta and it's not a totalitarian leader. A dictator, however, does try to be totalitarian. Yeah. And they can often... They can come into power democratically sometimes. So they're a president that's been elected yeah. or they've assumed power um, in the form of a liberation movement. Yeah. And just the, after constructing the state and its relevant leadership positions, the, the leader becomes the president. Yeah. Uh, and with all that power, they, um, they become the dictator of that country and they tend to rule the country like they would almost rule a household. Yeah. Uh, they, they appoint very specific functions to different people. Uh, but basically, at the end of the day, they really just want stuff, most of them just want stuff to get done for their benefit. So they, they run the country on, pat, on lines of patronage. Uh, they, they treat the people as a sort of client base that must serve their needs. Yeah. And, uh, and they'll do everything in their power to retain power. Yeah. That is the, the, the ultimate point of being a presidential dictator is to extend your presidential term. You're not interested in being voting out, of, being voted out of power. We see a lot of this in Africa currently, unfortunately. Um, in fact, currently, I think in Burkina Faso and in Burundi, we've seen attempted um, extending presidential terms, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a common trick of of these leaders to try and change the constitution because it's normally enshrined in the constitution uh, that the president has to step down after certain after having served a certain number of terms based on a certain number of years. Yeah. So there's a very definite limit set by the constitution on these people. But they'll try and change the constitution either legally or illegally to make sure that they never leave power. Yeah. Um, and what we see, the, the kind of behavior we see by these presidents, I must emphasize, is, is normally just to enrich themselves and those around them so that they can live a very f- flushed life. I think a really good example of this is Robert. Yeah. And I think uh, another reason this happens is a fact that you already brought up is the fact that these countries often have a pre-established constitution. Which means that oftentimes in these constitutions, power is vested in the president. So for any person to become the dictator, they need to gain that position. Whereas in your places where you have a military junta, they kind of throw the constitution out. So they just gain absolute authority. So you do see it in Africa. I mean, this is how Idi Amin did it. He couped against the government and then installed himself as a president. 
So he he transitioned from general of the army to the president, in which position the power was vested. And we see it in Africa a lot, in Latin America. You don't see it as much anymore, which is which is good. Um, but you saw it a lot in Latin America with people like uh, Hugo Chavez, uh, Fidel Castro, um, a whole bunch of other not very nice people. And we won't mention a certain Che Guevara who is involved in that. Yeah, fuck that guy. I fucking hate Che Guevara <laughs> so much. And the, I hate the fact that he is so beloved by so many fucking people. Because any of you... So many hippies. Oh my God. It's just with any of you list, just who listen to this podcast and have a romanticized view of Che Guevara, just do not go watch that fucking El Doctor documentary about him going around... I mean, he did some good stuff. I'm not, I'm not going to say he didn't. But he did some fucked up shit. Because he was essentially a mercenary. He was a huge yeah. homophobe. He fucking massacred a whole bunch of gay people. It was t- He did some really bad stuff. Just go and... And then when there, was, when there was no more work to do in Central and South America, he just jumped on the boat and came to Africa and started organizing ways to overthrow governments here because he was out of work and money. Yeah, he was a mercenary. Fucking asshole. And then the... Oh, this is an, a really good example of capitalism doing a really good job of turning a communist icon into a fucking commodity by selling goddamn t-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> fucking. So, yeah. Okay, I can go on for hours. <laughs> let's go on to okay. one party So let's states. talk about one, part, one party states. Yeah. Um, these are really easy to identify. It's, we all like democracy, well, people like democracy like them because they're supposed to be multi-party and they were like multi- multiple parties because they represent multiple perspectives and multiple interests. And when those interests and perspectives come together, we normally achieve a mean or an average good uh, which the country can act on. Yeah. However, when one party is in power and they have a significant majority in the legislature, they tend to start making rules about other parties existing, like the Zana PF did. So they either they either absorb opposition parties or they just ban them outright. Yeah. Um, and eventually, after a few years, once they successfully achieve that, you're only left with one party running the state. Yeah. Now, while it is practically possible, although hardly ever achieved, um, one party can can rule in government. It's ve- it, it's never supposed to happen um, that one party can rule the state. Yeah. And the difference here being that. Government is, are the arms of the state. They are what make the state work. So it's, it's mobilizing all of the state's resources. So when you, need the, when you need the police to do something, or we need the military to do something, or you need a state hospital to do something, government is the one that tells them to do mm. it. However, that doesn't make government the state. Yeah. So when a party comes to power, they, they manipulate the arms of, of government, they, they mobilize them, and they use them to serve what's supposed to be the public good. Yeah. However, when they have too much of their power, they absorb government, they become government, and they become the state at the same time. So one party, one government, one state. Uh, and we call those party states yeah. or a one-party state. And I think what always fascinated me about the one-party state system, like this happened primarily and happens primarily in Africa. And there was actually some really good, well, uh, misguided, but practical reasons for having it. And it was because... After the independence of many African states, leaders like Julius Nerera of um, Tanzania um, and Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana and you know, a whole bunch of others got together and they were talking about how best to set up democratic processes in Africa. The problem is in African countries, you don't have a nation state. So these countries are often made up of vastly different ethnic groups who all wanted to form their own political parties. So... 
they knew that if they put all those people into the legislature, you would never get anything done. So what their idea was, let's create one big party that represents everybody, and that party can then rule the country. Of course, what ended up happening is that party ended up being seized by whichever was the most powerful group, and that party ended up running the state and the country. Um, and this you know, it goes to show also some of the wisdom, political wisdom of Nelson Mandela when they were drawing up the 1996 South African Constitution. When they were still, they were thinking about making the ANC a one-party state in South Africa, and Nelson Mandela realized if that happened, then the ANC would never lose power. They needed opposition parties. And if you look at what's happened in South Africa now, the ANC has, to a certain extent, become a one-party state. But it's allowed the DA to become a bit of a more powerful political actor in opposition to them. Um, so it's it's an interesting thing that, you know, from a very kind of goodwill, pra- pragmatic response to what they knew was going to happen in Africa ended up just being a clusterfuck of, of disaster. Yeah, it's never a good idea to have a one-party state. In fact, um, it's very rare that we see them behave uh, effectively and, and, again, for the people. So our last one. Is theocratic states. And I think, so the th- oh, let me just jump in. So the theocratic states, uh, you know, they can fit into kind of any one of these categories. The only thing that really differentiates them is the fact that they are religiously based. So the leader, whether that is a council, whether that is a person, whether that is a president, you know, however you want to structure your system the leader is vested with religious authority to rule. So primary example today is Iran, where the leader of the state is Ayatollah Khomeini. There is a council of clergy underneath him. They maintain almost complete political authority. And then there is some authority vested in the president of Iran, but he or she, I don't know if Iran could have a female president. That'd be interesting. But (laughs) they... They, could. they have to listen to Ayatollah Khomeini and they have to listen to the Council of Clergy. Um, well, yeah. well, academics like to think that. Um, I think it's been misrepresented in textbooks quite strongly. At least people who live in, in Iran would know, you know, that's... That, while while it, it's supposed to work like that in theory, it doesn't work like that and, and it's, it's kind of... It works the way it's supposed to. It doesn't work the way the paper says it should. Because they, they're two, they're two houses, right? So Iran's parliament is split into two parts, and the one part has democratically elected leaders, yeah. and that's you know, that's run, that's represented by the prime minister. Um, whereas they also have the other half, which consists of Islamic scholars and jurists, and they're appointed by the supreme leader. Now the supreme leader here being the Khomeini. Yeah. They serve different terms. You know, the, the democratically elected leaders serve five years, and you know, the religious leaders serve six-year terms. Mm-hmm. But laws that are passed must be passed by all elected officials and checked by the scholars as well. So that it doesn't violate any of these Islamic principles. Um, if, they, if it does, then it has to be sent back for review. So there's a strong back and forth process that goes between these houses. Yeah. And it's up to the supreme leader um, to either accept it into law or to veto it altogether. So that supreme leader has a lot of power, but nothing would happen without the, without the, the representatives either. Yeah. Um, but it is our, our best and only example in the current world of a theocracy because of the amount of power that's given to the religious leader and how much political power uh, that religious le- leader can assume. Yeah. It's quite rare to see. And it just as an example of how this stuff just crosses over, like if you look at totalitarian 
Japan under the emperor, uh, you could consider that a party totalitarianism because there was one very conservative party. However, the emperor was himself in charge of pretty much everything. He could do whatever the hell he wanted. His authority was also religiously based. So you have a regime that is a totalitarian, one-party state, which is also a dictatorship and to a certain extent a theocracy. So just as an example of how these things get mixed and matched. I just want to add one more then, um, which is absolute monarchies. And our absolutism is a principle that is and a practice yeah. that is uh, very strong in totalitarianism, which is also included in our talk today. But as, when it comes to monarchies, um, it's very difficult for monarchs to rule absolutely. However, the idea still resolutes, uh, resonates quite strongly with them. Um, in, in, in Saudi Arabia, for example, you have leaders who are appointed um, and who assume power based on their heritage. And we know that this is, you know, this is how monarchies work. But in this case, it's not a constitutional monarchy like you would have in the UK, for example. Yeah. Where the where the powers of the of the of the leader are restrained by the constitution and uh, and given to the legislature. Yeah. In, in this case, they in, you know in Qatar as well and in Swaziland, the monarchs are allowed to make and form rules and laws on all of society. Yeah. In fact, in in Swaziland, the monarch owns around three quarters of the nation's wealth. Um. So so there, so there are very few restrictions on their power. Yeah. Another Gulf Gulf state is, I think, is Qatar. That's also run in this way, and and that's the main difference between the constitutional and the absolute monarchs. But the point here being that absolute monarchies are, are run in a much more authoritarian manner, and that their their power is very rarely limited. Yeah. Or and oftentimes they happen kind of in, in, by historical accident. So, like one of the famous examples is uh, 18th century France um, under King Louis the Fourteenth, I think. Um, I stand. I might be wrong, yeah. but sorry, fuck. No, I think you're right. <laughs> Where he <laughs> he uh, gave his famous uh, quote, uh, and excuse my French, uh, "Le state est moi." I am the state. Where basically all state power was invested in him as a person, giving him complete authority to do whatever the fuck he wanted. Um, so yeah, but Brock, let's have some fun now. Let's place some of the. Um, popular culture regimes into our different typologies. So, Well, popular culture has a lot of fun with totalitarian regimes. Yeah. They love the idea that leaders can do whatever they want and it gives them free reign to create some of the most evil characters we know. What's the, what's the first one that comes to your mind? Well, I want to see... Okay, so the Empire in Star Wars and uh, Emperor Palpatine and Darth Vader. Is that... Uh, I want to say it's a theocracy because those are religious leaders. They're Jedi Sith. Yeah, but except very few people know that. Okay. So what, are they just uh, dictators? Or absolute dictators? I mean, the emperor can do whatever the fuck he wants. Uh, yeah, I would... That's actually... Damn, I would I would have thought that it's such an easy one to do, but given how much these authoritarian regime types blur... Yeah. I would say... I'm, okay, I'm, I'm not inclined to say it's a it's a one-party state. No, definitely um, And it's, it's hardly a presidential dictatorship either. No. There's no constitution in the fucking empire. <laughs> in fact, mili- military junta has got a strong argument. But there's no council. Because... The, it's, a, it's a military dictatorship, if anything. Yeah, military dictatorship. Yeah. Yeah, but it is, to, it, but it is totalitarian in nature. Absolutely. And it's so easy to make a totalitarian regime because you can just write it in popular culture, which is... You don't have to deal with the pragmatic problems. Um, yes, we, we, we don't see the, the empire, you know, really struggling to... 
to exercise its authority. No. It's not it's not authoritarian. Um, it's not trying to suggest principles. It's not restraining itself in any way. It's trying to control every part of life and trying to control every part of the galaxy. Um, so I'll go with totalitarian military yeah. dictatorship. And very far on the right of our of our spectrum. It's, it's pretty hardcore. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's actually quite fun to analyze why it's a military dictatorship because, you know, because of the way Emperor star. Palpatine... <laughs> yeah, that helps. But also the ways um, uh, Palpatine built, you know, these uh, built an army of stormtroopers, uh, you know, under the guise of fighting against the separatists, mm. then dissolving the separatists and the droid army, and and still being left with an army, yeah. and under which he could, you know, force the destroy the, the Jedi and uh, overpower the Republic. And it's but it's also interesting to see the way that he assumed power because it wasn't a coup that he used to assume power. He created the position of Supreme Chancellor, invested all power in the regime in that position, and then dissolved the democracy. So he he acted in a very kind of presidential dictatorship way, but went like three steps above that. And Because there is no rule of law. He is not subject to any kind of legal ramifications for whatever he does. Yeah, that's correct. It's one, it's one of the best pieces of writing we've, I've seen in popular <laughs> From the fucking pen of George Goddamn Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about, where would you place, you know, in, in The Walking Dead, after season one, when, when Rick the leader gives up and he's like, screw this democracy stuff, our group is too small to make mistakes, people die yeah. when we try and do things slowly and correctly and pragmatically and democratically. This is now a dictatorship. Where do we place our dictatorship? Um, that's an interesting one because of okay. Let, maybe you should take away what it's not. Definitely not a party state. It's certainly not theocratic. Um, I yeah. wouldn't say it's presidential because there's no laws. There's no constitution. Um, I'm kind of. Could it be military? I mean, they're all kind of military thinking. But if I was to say anything, I would say it's a. You know, it's like almost a personality cult. Those people follow him because they believe in the Rick dictatorship. They believe in Rick um, as a person. So it, it, the power is vested in him as a person. Maybe that's a good time to to, to uh, bring up the split between personalized regimes and pluralist regimes, where any one of these totalitarian or authoritarian regime types, even the the monarchies and the theocracies. They can all be built either around a personalized rule where there's one individual leader who gathers support or fear from the people. Or it could be a pluralized form of rule where there's like the, you know, the military council. There's there's a small group of people who gather support or fear from the people. Um, And they can do it, you know, either through either by claiming to, to be for the people by doing certain things for them or just by, you know, threatening death if they don't follow. Yeah. Um, and Rick is so, still... So in this case, if, if we were to say the Rick dictatorship is a, is a military regime type, um, we would say it's a personalized one as opposed to a pluralist one because we don't see a group of Ricks. You know, maybe later in, in the like in season six now, you see a few of the, you know, some leaders that are close to him, yeah. but they aren't quite... They don't... It, they aren't attributed with the same sort of cultish popularity. And I think it's interesting in the case of Rick because you can also call him... Uh, what we sometimes call a benevolent despot, which is a dictator who's not that bad. Uh, Because, you know, he's a dictator, what he says goes, but he still takes advice. You know, he listens to Daryl, and he listens to Herschel, he takes on their opinions, and then he makes a decision. 
So, you know, it's like a benevolent dictatorship almost. Yeah, I would say it's definitely benevolent because he does everything for his group. Yeah. He always, always trying to protect them, um, especially his son. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's definitely benevolent. So, what, what about, uh, let's talk about some one-party states because we haven't we haven't given an example of i think that there's a couple of examples like firstly like one of my favorites would be the crossover between like v for vendetta 1984 and um a brave new world you know 1984 and a brave new world are all examples of i know those are totalitarian actually let's leave those for totalitarian v for vendetta is probably the better example um because that's a one party that's managed to seize control of England in the future, ruled by... Fuck, no, that's a dictatorship. Is it a dictatorship? No, he's definitely got a party. So he, 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 they have like a party chairman. That's what he is. He's, he's the party chairman. Uh, one would assume that he's elected into that position by the party itself. And... But you see how blurry it gets in the popular culture that, you know, you could say he's a dictator, but I would say that that's a party. That's a party dictatorship. Maybe a better example would be, um, no, not even equilibrium. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, you know, there are very very few examples in popular culture of parties because, you know, it's difficult to set up and to write stories around political parties because they're quite extensive. Yeah, um, you know they compose of many people, of many ideas. They've got quite a history to them, so t- it would take a lot of time um, in a, in a film or in a TV series or even in a computer game to yeah. dedicate to one party. Um, however, well, there actually I, I is was... a computer game. And now that I'm thinking about it, and I don't know if you've played it, but let me throw it in there. It's a computer game called Metro, La- uh, and there, there's two. It's Metro and then Metro Last Light. It's based on a, a series of books, but it's a post-apocalyptic game set in the Metro of Moscow. And there's a bunch of commies in that, and they have a party dictatorship. They run a big part of it based on this huge uh, party dictatorship that runs a, a certain number of lines within the metro. Uh, it's a very cool game if, if nobody's played it. Sorry to throw that in there. <laughs> but essentially, that's just communism. Yes. Com- well, com- most communist states, you know, they would call themselves the party. They would refer to the party, the yeah. communist party. Um, so I think you know, many examples of one party states would be communist. But I, I, my mind keeps jumping back to equilibrium, because there you don't get any idea that the that the, the powers that be or the powers that rule were voted in. So it's, yeah. it doesn't really feel like a democracy, and you know it wouldn't. So it takes that away from being a party, because most parties are active in democracies. Yeah. However, it, they do certainly seem unified. They do certainly yeah. have um, political objectives, and I I'm willing to bet that they have a manifesto. Yeah. And they 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 run. They, they exercise authority in a very objective way. They seem to uh, practice power and exercise power in a way that is, obje- that is outside of themselves. So the way that you know, the person that they call the father, yeah. he, he would give commands and directives based on what, is, what ought to be done. Uh, and he always is trying to suggest people to live beyond themselves, to, to be a certain person that is almost greater than they are. Mm. Indicating that there are rules and there's a, a philosophy in that world that is um, that is beyond the parties, beyond the rulership, uh, and beyond the community, beyond the society. So well, it the philosophy indicates that is there the is so, there's some sort of like a there's some, there's some sort of state at, that is that exists there. There's some communal good. Yeah. And 
Yeah, I'll give Equilibrium a watch, but you know, it's not it's not a perfect one. And there's a very good reason why you don't see one party states as authoritarian regimes in popular culture, and that's the fact that when we watch movies or read books or play games, we need to focus on a character. And once you make a character the face of that party, it it very easily morphs into a dictatorship. Well, that <laughs> you, you, the a really cool example there is is a character called called the dictator, played by Sasha Baron Cohen. You know that comedy where he's uh, the leader of uh, a fictitious dictatorship um, yeah. from the Middle East, and he um, he goes to <laughs> to the United Nations in New York and gets abducted and replaced by a double. And his assassination <laughs> is a fail, um, but I mean it's it's a comedy, so it's uh, difficult to take the. With fucking the Ben seriously. Kingsley, Ben Kingsley's in that movie. <laughs> ben Kingsley's a legend. The guy who played Gandhi is in the Sandra Baron Cohen movie. <laughs> for fuck's sake! Well, the guy who played Gandhi also played the the Mandarin in Iron Man three. Oh yeah, but don't even talk to me about the way they fucked up the Mandarin. Oh god. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so Sasha Baron Cohen's character is is a president, and they actually poke a lot of fun at the power that he exercises. <laughs> like, uh, you know, he just decides on a whim whether or not women should have uh, should be allowed to be educated, for example, or whether yeah. or not to build. You know, his his life's goal is to build a nuclear bomb, and, and to and to use it on anybody. Uh, he just decides on a whim who should live and who should die, especially if they please or, or satisfy him. Yeah. And um, so he has everything his own way. Um, he, he jokes at the idea of being accountable. Uh, you know, he, he takes out anybody who opposes him. Yeah. It's a really, it's a really funny and accurate depiction of a presidential <laughs> dictatorship. I highly recommend. The way he changes certain, like, nouns to his name, um, which have actually happened in history. There have been dictators in places like the Middle East who were so fucking insane that they changed specific proper nouns in the vocabulary of whatever language to their name. So, and I think it just made a lot of people confused when they were talking to each other. But <laughs> um, I, if it, it's a bit crass at some point, so I must say that if you it's know a Sasha Baron Cohen know. movie, of course. Yeah, of course. Just be ready for it. Um, we haven't discussed any examples of theocratic states. We've mentioned the possibility of the empire in, in Star Wars. You know, even to a certain extent, equilibrium. If you thought of the father as a religious figure mm. um, that could be a theocracy but they never they never treated in any other way as a yeah. religious society in fact you know the whole point of Christian Bale's character is for him to eradicate any religious or emotional following can you think of any theocratic examples priest um, so the movie with Paul Bethany actually the voice of Jarvis the guy who plays Vision in the, in the Avengers he is a, a priest in his, <laughs> No, his his character is set in a futuristic society where uh, religious leaders command the its organization, and yeah. was, they were formed. They, they were actually formed like a liberation movement. So they were under scourge from a vampiric blight, yeah. and they eradicated the the. They trained priests, religious priests, uh, in military combat, and were able to eradicate all vampires, and that institutionalized. The legitimacy of the priesthood as as political rulers. Yeah. So when, but th- this happened many, you know, many decades before the film is set. So when Paul Bethany's character discovers that vampires still exist, he goes on a mission to try and convince the the, the both the political and by nature the religious authorities that he should be commissioned to go and destroy the threat. 
Yeah. And uh, it's it's a really cool and fun film. Um, the action's great. The the vampires are sort of depicted more like creatures rather than people. Yeah. And uh, it's, they're more like demons. Nice, yeah, they're, they're a bit more like demons. Yeah. Funny, scary. Uh, compl- it's it feels a bit like the Book of Eli. I'd recommend yeah. the film. Um, but there, 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 you do see a great institutionalization of religious power as as political rule uh, yeah. or political rulers. In fact, that city in which they rule it, it is almost a bit like Robocop City. Yeah, yeah, like the futuristic Detroit. And I, Brock and I have have played around with this idea before that, like, in any kind of popular culture movie where the rules of that universe is that the supernatural and the you know, religious is real, where you have proof, like this is a real thing, that it's almost, in, you know, it's, I, I think that it's a foregone conclusion that you would have a theocratic state. I, you know, I've, I think Brock disagreed with me in a previous episode, but I think if you had the religious type of zombie and you knew like, hey, supernatural stuff is real, I, your, your, your leader should be a religious figure because they're the ones who are fighting against the religious, uh, you know, the supernatural creation that's against you and yeah I, I think if if your if your political formation or your political structure existed to defend you to defend society from a, a new re- threat that has been studied by a particular religion i would feel most comfortable following a religious leader because they would know the most be, be in the best position to protect me from said threat yeah you know, i wouldn't trust my president to to defend me from vampires yeah no, I don't want fucking Barack Obama. I want the Pope. Yes. <laughs> um, in fact, on that note, you should uh, go give a listen to one of our shorter episodes on the- on theocratic zombie states, which yeah. we did uh, to, to to compare worlds in a zombie apocalypse where the zombies are of uh, a religious nature. Yeah. It was uh, quite a funny episode to do. And I, so now to to go on to the totalitarian regimes. And these have kind of had a resurgence in popular culture recently with your Hunger Games, uh, Divergence. Um, but I think a lot of them are based on ideas that were brought about through books such as 1984 and A Brave New World, uh, which are also good movies that you should go see, but they're, they're much older movies. But if you look at examples like The Hunger Games, for instance, you have a complete totalitarian regime in Capitol, which is a fucking stupid name for a city. And, you know, they have absolute control over all the districts, which they exercise through the Hunger Games, which is, I don't know, that seems like a really dumb way to exercise political control, but it works in that universe, so, you know, I don't know, whatever works for you. But, you know, President Snow, so it's interesting, President Snow is a president, so you could say it, it is definitely a presidential dictatorship, but it's also a totalitarian presidential dictatorship, one in which he has almost absolute power. Yeah, he has a good one. We, we earlier said that Rick's dictatorship is a personalized one. The one um, run by President Snow is more populist, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that there is a lot of like devotion to President Snow as a person, um, whereas no. in other popular culture... Uh, there is a lot more, you know. There is devotion to Rick as a leader. He has a he has a personality cult around him. People believe in him. President Snow wields his power through fear. It, 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 and it, and in addition to that, he still claims and in some ways satisfies the people's uh, desire for populist rule by you know giving them the Hunger Games. Yeah, uh, yeah. By doing certain things to appease them. 
Um, yeah. And to not only and not just him, but also a group of his uh, of his associates. It's um, it you know there are many people that help him out to get the Hunger Games to exist and to um, help run it. It's not just him that makes the show tick. Yeah. So it's not just run by many people. It's also run for the people. Yeah. And like my last example, just uh, to get it in there for a military junta, which I don't think we found really. In are we back? Are we going back to a military junta? Well, we've done a military dictatorship. But I, there is a good example of a military junta, which is you know a council of military leaders, and I think that that's StarCraft, uh, the computer game, because uh, in StarCraft you have two sides. You've got the Confederacy, uh, well yeah. in the first game you've got the Confederacy, uh, and then you've got the Sons of Korhol, which is like the rebellion movement against the Confederacy. But in the beginning of the game, when you're working for the Confederacy before you 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 rebel against them. Uh, you you are getting a whole bunch of information from you know the leaders of the Confederacy, which is very much a military dictatorship. It's a military-run uh, system, very much based on you know the old American Civil War and the Confederacy in the in the South. But the leaders of that that group are the military leaders in of the you know the spaceships and stuff. It's all the admirals of the different spaceships. They are the ones who give you your orders. I think that's a really good example of a military junta. It's a complete society that's completely run by the military, but not just by one guy, but by the military as a whole uh, and the leaders of the military. Well, that's a good example. Um, I'm, I don't have much to add to that because I haven't played enough StarCraft, unfortunately. I'm not. I'm against Blizzard. But just to end, I think I don't want to leave out Absolute Monarchs because although there's not a lot more to to be said on them, given the nature of these authoritarian regimes, it, they you know they don't exhibit any starkly different qualities. Just that they are they inherit power rather than being voted in or, or achieving it through a coup d'état. Yeah. Uh, the, some good examples in well any example that I can think of in popular culture representing an absolute monarch has just got to do with your traditional stock standard king or queen. Yeah. Or typically they're very often depicted as evil. Uh, even your your typical evil genius type of ruler. Um, but in, but particularly when it comes to a king, just think of King Joffrey. Just think of um, the queen in Snow White. Just think of you know any one of Disney's. Uh, Evil villains who have inherited power and use it for their personal for their personal goals. When um, you know, if Aragorn becomes king of Gondor, does he become an absolute ruler? I mean, he could be a good absolute ruler, though, but he'd still be absolute. Oh, so you're talking about again, like the altruistic despot? Yeah, but I mean, I mean, you theoretically you could have a, a good absolute ruler. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the constitution of Gondor is. Uh, do you, I don't know. I mean, I think that Aragorn would be pretty absolute. We just don't think about that because they're so few and far between when we uh, when we read books. You know, it's yeah. so often absolute power is used to illustrate the the idea that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah. Um, our philosopher king, played by Viggo Mortensen, would probably be a good example of how dictators can be alt- altruistic. You can have you know benevolent dictators yeah. as well. So that that would be a good one. You would yeah, that would be an absolute monarch. That existed for the people. Yeah, until their son gets a throne and becomes a dickhead. <laughs> why, why would why would that happen? I, I don't know. Like that's what happens all the fucking time. We were, I thought we were going to end on a happy note there. No, there's no happiness in politics. It's just uh, despair. <laughs> <laughs> the song we used in this episode is one that you should recognize, but just so we don't get sued, it's called the Imperial March. 
or Darth Vader's theme. It was written and composed and conducted by the esteemed John Williams and played by a number of orchestras, but the original was the Boston Pops Orchestra. It's one of the major Star Wars themes, and it's actually my ringtone at the moment. Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed that. Please go to the website, landsofleviathan.com, for more content, such as other episodes, as well as written articles. You can also listen to the podcast directly on the Acast app and iTunes, or other podcast apps, as well as YouTube. We would love your comments and feedback, so please send us an email at landsofleviathan at gmail.com. That's L-A-N-D-S-O-F-L-E-V-I-A-T-H-A-N at gmail.com. Or you can contact us on Facebook as well as Twitter by the same name, the Lands of Leviathan Podcast. You can follow us on those networks as well. Plus we have an RSS and email subscription service on the website. Remember to like, subscribe and share, guys. Thanks so much.